I hope you have the notes. So Isaiah 53, and today uh, we're going to read verses 7 to 9. <laughs> this is week 9 in Isaiah 53, Sermon 52, um, in Shadows of Golgotha. I think it might be even Sermon 53. So it has been way over a year since we started talking about the Shadows of Golgotha. This is... Um, week 9 in Isaiah 53, amazing chapter. We're still going to have a few more weeks left in that chapter. So we're going to read verses 7 to 9. Actually, let's all read it together. Again, we want to memorize that chapter, so reading it together will help. So let's read Isaiah 53, 7 to 9 together. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Amen. So we've been talking about Isaiah 53. If you remember, um, we started from Isaiah 52 verse 13. And then um, we say that all the way till the end of Isaiah 53, each three verses kind of forming a stanza or a block that has a, a major topic that these three verses address. Our three verses today addresses a very particular topic, which is how the servant of the Lord was treated so unjustly in spite of the fact that he was sinless. Okay, that's the point of these three verses. That's the, the bottom line of what Isaiah is trying to tell us. That even though the servant was so sinless, he didn't do anything wrong, yet he was treated so unjustly and he was uh, cut off from the land of the living. He died in an unjust manner. So that's the point of these three verses. In verse 7, we see that the mistreated servant was silent in the face of his death. In verse 8, we see that the, his contemporaries, people who surrounded him, did not understand really the reason of his death. And in verse 9, we see that he received an honorable burial following his death. Okay, so that's pretty much the main points here of these three verses. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearer, so he opened not his mouth. Do you see, guys, that it seems like in this verse it's, there is a parallel? It, you can split that verse into two halves. The first half is, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That's the first half. And then the second half of the verse, he was like a lamb, he was like a sheep, yet he opened not his mouth. So it seems like that verse can be divided into two. And there is a parallel going on between these two parts. And the major point of verse 7, can somebody help me out here, is what? That the servant did not open his mouth. He was silent in face of all the oppression and the affliction and the death that he was facing in spite of the fact that he was innocent, yet he still did not open his mouth. <coughs> this just highlights 
the wording of these three verses real quick. The first one is, he was oppressed. And the Hebrew word that is used here is, is really a word that is used when, it's used a couple of times when there is an army and this army is being under distress from the attacking army and they're kind of like losing hope and they're under so much affliction. That is pretty much the idea that we read about here in this word, that Jesus was under so much distress and under so much pressure and harassment from those who were surrounding him at the time of the cross. I mentioned here a couple of examples of how this word was used. I'm just going to look into the first Samuel 14, 24. That would be the last example, third line at the very end. It talks about the Israelites, how they won over the Palestinians. And, and Saul the king commanded them not to eat, even though if they would have eaten, they would have obtained a greater victory. So in 1 Samuel 14, 24, now the Israelites were in distress that day. They were harassed, they were pressured, they were oppressed that day. It's the exact same word that is used to describe how Jesus felt and suffered on the cross. Because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself from my enemies. So you get the idea that, that, that the army is so exhausted, is so tired. And they still cannot eat because Saul has put them under oath not to do that. It's, it's, it's a level of pressure and oppression that they experienced that time. And that is the exact same word that used to describe how Jesus suffered on the cross. He was oppressed. But not only that, but he also was afflicted. He was suffering. The word um, in, in Hebrew here is ana. Same thing in Arabic. I speak Arabic. It's my mother tongue. Anna in Arabic is literally means to suffer, to, to, to endure hardship. And that's precisely what Jesus has endured on the cross. He was afflicted, he suffered, he was oppressed, he was depressed because of all the torture that he has endured. Yet, in the face of all the torture and the pain that Jesus has endured on the cross, he did what? He opened not his mouth. And we see that over and over and over again when Jesus was about to be crucified we see that he was talking to the Sanhedrin which is that the council of the of the elders of the nation of Israel at that time and they accuse him and what does the bible say about Jesus that he was silent he did not open his mouth and then they take him to Pilate the the, the, the Roman uh, governor of that time and then Pilate is trying to get him out, but Jesus would not open his mouth. He is still silent in the face of all this accusation. Then they take him to Herod the king, who's still accusing him and trying to get, to get Jesus to do a miracle for him. And what would Jesus do? He did not open his mouth. So they take him back to Pilate, and Pilate is trying to get him out, trying to put Barabbas in, in, in comparison to Jesus, trying to find a reason to get him out. And what would Jesus do in spite of all of that? He still did not open his mouth. Amen? Amen. Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was tormented. Jesus was harassed and oppressed on the cross. Unjustly, unfairly being treated by the Jews, by the Romans, by everybody who was at his time. And he was crucified and in spite of the fact he did not do one single sin. Yet, in spite of all that oppression and affliction, what would Jesus do? He would not open his mouth. And then it says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Remember what we said last week 
that we all like sheep have gone astray each to his own way right now Isaiah is reminding us remember we all like sheep Jesus also was like a sheep but the only difference is we were going astray each one to his own way apart and away and running away from God Jesus on the other hand was like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearer and he did not open his mouth and we read that how this scripture was so vividly uh, fulfilled when Christ was crucified. When they took him out of Jerusalem and Jesus carried his cross and he went down a road that we know now to be Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering that's still existing in, in, in Israel today. And Jesus carrying his cross, he was led by the Romans as a lamb led to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearer. And what would Jesus do? He did not open his mouth and he did not object. Amen? The only time we read about Jesus talking while he's carrying his cross and going to, to, to Calvary to be crucified is, is he just talked to the daughter of, of Israel, the daughter of Jerusalem in sympathy and he said just don't, don't be so worried, don't cry for me, cry for you and for what's going to happen to you. But as far as complaining against the Romans or against the Jews who, who unjustly oppressed him and made him to carry his cross to be crucified, Jesus did not open his mouth and he was led like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearer. That's a very common practice in the Old Testament to shear the sheep, to, to cut off the walls so this way they can use it. We read actually about Nabal in the, in the Old Testament during the time of David that he was a sheep shearer. That was his job. So the way they shear the sheep, apparently, I, I had to do some reading because I don't know how they do it. So apparently they tie the, 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 the four legs of the sheep and then they lay the sheep on its side and the sheep would just quiet, total surrender and they just come with a scissor or whatever they have and they just cut off all that wool and just, uh, just take it off the sheep. And the sheep throughout this process is just an absolute and total surrender. And that's precisely what Isaiah is trying to tell us here about Jesus, that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearer. He did not resist none of his oppressors, even though throughout the whole process he was unjustly being treated and unjustly condemned. Amen? We're just meditating on what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Amen? Now, the church knew that this verse is here, talks about Jesus. There is no question about it. As a matter of fact, this part that we just start reading right here in verse uh, 7, that was quoted in the book of Acts chapter 8. The Bible tells us about the, the Ethiopian Enoch who, who came to worship. And then he was in the chariot going back to Ethiopia. And then the Holy Spirit told Philip to go and approach him so can, he can tell him about Jesus. And Philip comes under the guy of the Holy Spirit and once he approached the Ethiopian guy what does he hear the Ethiopian guys reading the Ethiopian guy happened to be reading Isaiah 53 verse 7 from the middle of that verse right here he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer he was silent so he opened not his mouth and then the Ethiopian Enoch also was reading the following verse, which we're just going to read right now. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and 
who will declare to his generation for his life was taken from the earth. That's verse 22 and 23 from Acts chapter 8. And then that the Ethiopian Enoch asked Philip, who is Isaiah talking about here? Look at the following verse, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from where? At this scripture right here, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Preaching who? Jesus to him. So there's no question in our mind that the New Testament believers, the apostles and the disciples understood that this scripture right here is clearly talking about nobody else except Jesus who is the servant of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, it says after that, by oppression, actually I want you to keep that verse that we were just reading from, um, from Acts 8. Keep it in mind because we're going to talk about it a little bit more now. Now, if you move on to verse 8, we're going to see that the way Isaiah worded verse 8 is different a little bit than the way the Ethiopian Enoch was reading that in, in Acts chapter 8. So Isaiah was reading this, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. But if you look back at a Roman and Acts chapter 8, how does that part read? Verse 33, you guys follow me? In his... Humiliation, his justice was taken away. Do you guys follow me? Okay. So do you see there's a little bit of a difference in the translation, in the wording of that part between Isaiah and between how the New Testament quoted that part. We'll talk about that in a minute. Just keep that in mind. Let's look first at what Isaiah is trying to tell us. Isaiah said that by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, what Isaiah is trying to tell us here is a lot of people debate what exactly he's trying to tell us, but the major consensus, everybody pretty much agree that the main point of what Isaiah is trying to tell us here is that the servant went through a court system, a judicial system, and he was unjustly treated and unfairly condemned through that process. That's pretty much what Isaiah is telling us here. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was unfairly, unjustly condemned even though he was innocent after he went through a legal process. Okay? We'll, we'll take that part and we'll talk about it very precisely next week. We're going to talk about all the trials and the judgments that Jesus has went through. And I'm going to show you how very precisely Jesus was unfairly and unjustly treated from the Jews, from the Gentiles, and even when he was judged by God on the cross. We'll talk about that next week. Seven judgments Jesus went through during that cross. And in each one of them, Jesus was treated un unjustly. But it was, he was not just treated unjustly and unfairly in the legal process that he went through. It also said that he was taken away. And the idea here that Isaiah is trying to tell us is that Jesus was rushed through the trial. He was just moving from one step to another. People just trying to rush him through. Just like when the Congress tried to pass a bill. They just rush it through. They don't read it. And that's precisely what happened to Jesus on the cross. And if you go in the New Testament, and read, I'm not reading every word you guys, so I'm just, um, you can read it at home, but if you can follow me. If you go and read how Jesus was condemned in the Gospels, they catch him at night, within less than 24 hours, he was probably on the cross, you know, just, just 
rush the whole thing through. Not even that's not even right by Jewish law. When somebody's condemned to death, they don't start. Let's do the whole process within twenty less than twenty four hours. Jesus was captured on Thursday at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was crucified Sunday, Friday, that very next day. Within twenty four hours, he was already hanged on the cross. And within these twenty four hours, he went through many, many, many trials. Many people condemned him and judged him. None of the people could find the fault in him, and they ended up crucifying him anyways. Amen. Amen. By oppression and by judgment, he was rushed through. He went through a legal, corrupt process. That's precisely what Isaiah is trying to tell us here. He went through a legal, corrupt process. And even though he did not sin, yet he was condemned unfairly anyway. And the process was so rushed, it was not even, they were not even trying to do the right thing. Amen? That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us here. Isn't the word of God so amazing the details that they describe about the Messiah and who he is and what he's going to do is just so powerful. Amen? Now, let's look at the difference between this portion right here and the New Testament in Acts chapter 8. Why the wording is different? In the New Testament in Acts chapter 8 we read, in his humiliation his justice was taken away. And when you read that, you and me, it's, it's a hard phrase to understand. Like, what does this even mean? In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. The idea here is um, that Philip, when he approached the Ethiopian guy, the Ethiopian guy was reading from the Septuagint. This is how the Septuagint translated that part of Isaiah. They translated verbatim like this. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. You guys know what the Septuagint is? Talked about so many times before. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ. Amen? That's pretty much the Bible that Jesus and the early disciples were using. So, the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Jesus read that part, translated that part just like that. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. So, the fact that um, the New Testament quoted it the exact same way that the Septuagint reads it can indicate one of two things. Well, number one, either that Luke who wrote Acts pretty much using the Septuagint all the time to reference the Old Testament. This is very common. Luke always does that. Or the other easy option is that the Ethiopian on Enoch was actually reading the Septuagint when, when Philip approached him. So the Bible is just documenting the words that the Ethiopian Enoch was actually reading at that time. You guys following? So that's pretty much why there's a difference. The meaning of, of the Septuagint, even though it's, it's a little bit different, the wording is different, yet the, the point is still the same. That servant was so humbled, that's what it is. And in his humiliation, he was treated unjustly. The justice was taken away from him. Again, it's the same idea. That he went through a corrupt legal process and he was condemned unfairly, even though he has committed no sin. Amen? And isn't that precisely what happened to Jesus on the cross? He was condemned unjustly. And then Isaiah continues and said, And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Now, that's another hard phrase to try to understand. Um, what you 
understand when you read Isaiah is this. Isaiah was saying that the contemporaries of Jesus, the people who surrounded Jesus of that time, did not understand the real reason why Jesus was crucified, right? They didn't know why he was being cut off from the land of the living, that he was actually being stricken, not for his own transgression, but for the transgression of my people, right? Now, the New Testament, if you read how it is written in the book of Acts again, you're going to see that the first part, and as for his generation who considered, it's, it's, it's written differently. Again, following the Septuagint, and it reads like this. Who can describe his generation? You guys follow me? This is how it's written in Acts chapter 8. Who can describe, not to his generation, but who can describe his generation. Amen? Which makes it very, very difficult to understand. It might carry the idea that the servant will succeed in what God wants him to do and he will have a massive offspring, a massive number of followers because of his death on the cross. So the Bible that Zeptosian reads, who can describe how magnificent, how large his generation will be, his offspring or the results of his suffering will be, right? That's possibly a meaning that the Septuagint is trying to say, but chances are, I think it's, they're trying to still, they might just have misworded or something like that, but the idea here is still the same for me. Who can describe to his generation that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he was stricken for the transgressions of my people? You guys follow me? Wording is different, meaning is a little bit obscure, but we can still assume that the Septuagint is trying to go with the same meaning that who can tell, who can describe to the people who are surrounding him that the real reason of his suffering is that he was being stricken for the transgression of my people. Amen? Follow me so far? Alright, and then it says that he was cut off out of the land of the living. The, the wording for cut off here, it, it, the Hebrew word here, it definitely indicates a violent and not a peaceful death. Like a sudden violent cut off for a person from the land of the living. Amen? And that's really what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was cut off within 24 hours again. Just dying, being crucified, and he was cut off from the land of the living. A violent, sudden, unexplainable um, unfounded death. We see the exact same word describing the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. The exact same word describing that the Messiah will be cut off. He will die not in a natural way but a sudden violent death. Amen? Who can describe, or among his people, who can tell, who can consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living? So out of the land of the living is definitely talking about physical death here, okay? This is nothing metaphoric here. There is, this is all literal about the Messiah and how he's going to die. And then it says that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, Okay? Now, my people is an extremely important two words in this, the song of, of the servant here. Why? Because <clears throat> there's a lot of Jewish rabbi who will read that, 
chapter and say, oh, this is not the Messiah. This is just the nation of Israel suffering, um, you know, under the righteousness of God or whatever. They just like any righteous person going through suffering. So is the nation of Israel going through suffering here. We might spend a week talking about that. But these two words right here, that the Messiah or the servant was stricken for my people. Who's my people? The Jewish nation, right? Us, correct. But when in the context here, who is the people that Isaiah is referring to? Definitely, no question about it. No question about it. It is the Jewish people, right? The Jewish nation, right? And here we see that the Messiah, the servant, will suffer for Israel. Correct? So that tells us point blank, no question about it, that the servant can never be Israel. You guys follow me? Because here it tells us that the servant will suffer for Israel, therefore the servant cannot be Israel. You're with me? Yeah, if you, it's, it's, uh, the servant will suffer for my people. So if people here definitely are reference to the Jewish nation, there's no question about that. Nobody will debate that. Therefore, the servant must not be Israel. It is somebody else other than the nation of Israel. Amen? Yes. If you meet a Jew, they're probably going to bring that up to you. So now you know what to say. Now, who is the person who's speaking here? My people. Who is, is talking here? Notice there is a change from the, the plural pronouns to the singular pronoun here, right? Because it says, before that, let's go. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Um, yet he opened mouth, not his mouth. He was like a sheep before its shearer. Uh, he did not open his mouth. He was taken from present. Uh, I'm sorry. Let's go even before that. Remember verse 4 and 5 and 6. It says that, um, but he bore our transgression, that he took our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the whole tone so far has been in plural. A group of people is talking. But here there is a switch from a group of people talking. Our transgressions, our iniquity, our sickness, our disease, the iniquity of us all has now been switched to a singular, my people. The speaker has changed. You guys follow me? Yeah. So why did the speaker change? Who's the speaker now? There's multiple options here who that speaker would be. The first option is that the change from a, from a plural to a singular it still does not mean a change of a speaker. We see a couple of examples in the Old Testament where the speaker is plural, but they refer to them in a singular way. So that would be 1 Samuel 5.10 and Zechariah 8.21. So it might be just, you know, poetic. Nothing really has changed. Just poem or, you know, language difference, but nothing really has changed. The second option here is, which I believe is true, the speaker here might be God. Yahweh has changed now from the nation of Israel speaking to God speaking. We see God introducing the servant in Isaiah 52, 13 saying, Behold my servant, right? So the fact that God can jump into that conversation and say something in the middle is not very odd. Amen? And finally here, the speaker could be Isaiah himself, the prophet, referring to the nation of Israel as my people. Still also plausible. The fact of the matter is, whoever the speaker is, he's talking about Israel saying, this is my people whom the servant will die and suffer for. So the servant can never be Israel in that phrase. You guys follow me? This is key. Extremely important if you end up sharing the gospel with a Jewish person who will argue against, against Christ. 
Now, the last part, it says this. <clears throat> he was stricken for the transgression of my people. It literally, the Hebrew goes something like this. That the strike that was due my people fall upon him. That's literally what the Hebrew says. Okay? The strike that should have fallen on my people fallen upon him. Now, the word he was stricken again in Hebrew literally goes something like this. That blow that was due my people has fallen upon him. And I just love that because the word due... Do it's just this is like the sacrificial substitutional death of Christ so clear that God is actually going to punish sin and people because they sinned against God there is a due punishment 